You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 268. I love you. Ditto. Sam Wheat, ghost. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Have you ever wanted to learn from a Hollywood blockbuster screenwriter or even an Oscar winner? Well, I wanted to put together a free three-day screenwriting video series taught by legendary screenwriters David Goyer, from who wrote The Dark Knight, Nia Valdouris, who wrote the Big Fat Greek Wedding, Oscar-winning Callie Corey, who wrote Thelma and Louise, and Oscar winner Paul Haggis, who wrote Casino Royale. If you want access to this free class, head over to bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash free. Well, guys, today you are in for a treat because we have on the show today Oscar-winning screenwriter Bruce Joel Rubin. And Bruce has written amazing films like Jacob's Ladder, My Life, Stuart Little, and the Oscar-winning Ghost, the biggest film of 1990. And this episode's not only special because of the amazing conversation you're about to hear with me and Bruce, but Bruce was originally recorded for my other podcast that I have, Next Level Soul. It has been a show that I've been doing now for a little bit over a year and a half, and I wanted to introduce that new show and, frankly, the new world that I've been in over there in Next Level Soul to my indie film hustle and bulletproof screenwriting audience. Now, the Next Level Soul podcast discusses all aspects of life's journey, spirituality, mindset, relationships, health and wellness, longevity, creativity, business, entrepreneurship, and money. Throughout my life, I've always been asking those big questions. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? And that is why I launched Next Level Soul, to help people get closer to their higher self and closer to the answers to those deep, deep questions. And I have to tell you that that show has, I have been interviewing quantum physicists, uh, spiritual gurus from India, spiritual leaders, spiritual masters, uh, mindset specialist, entrepreneur specialist, longevity, biohacking. I, I cover it all on Next Level Soul. So if you guys are interested in checking this out, head over to www.nextlevelsoul.com. And if you want to watch the show, you can head over to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. 
Now, without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Bruce Joel Rubin. I'd like to welcome to the show, Bruce Joel Rubin. How are you doing, Bruce? Great. Thanks, Alex. Doing well. Thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to talk to you. I mean, I, uh, obviously, I've been a fan of your work in the film industry with you know, the films that you've written and directed and been part of, but also I'm excited about your spiritual path and where you've been going with that uh, throughout your life as well. So, but my very first question I have to ask you is, what, how did you know that you wanted to be a writer? Um, I don't think I knew that exactly. Uh, I had a bit of a skill set. I know I was writing poetry in the fourth or fifth grade, and my mother would read it to my aunts, and they would go, oh, this is wonderful, and I would feel, you know, filled up by that. Uh, but I, no, I didn't know that. I, I kind of loved theater from a very young age, and I kind of got interested in movies uh, when I was four years old, but I didn't see film as an art form until I was in high school. I saw, you know, uh, the magician, seven, a magician, seven seal, Bergman, and then some Antonioni, et cetera. And, and I realized it was probably worthy. And, uh, and then I just felt I would like to make movies. Writing movies was like a doorway to making movies. But there's a whole other step from writing movies to directing movies. Or forget writing, just go right to directing. And I had a lot of friends who did that. But I really, uh, I found the doorway for me was a writer's door. Now, how did you break into Hollywood? Because even in the 80s, little I would imagine it was a bit easier than it is today, but it was still hard. <laughs> I don't know that there's a doorway to Hollywood. I've always told people you have to go through the crack underneath the door, you know, because <laughs> it's not open for anybody, really. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I didn't really get a career going until I was in my 40s. So there was no easy path at all. I just, uh, I, I think the biggest problem and this is not mine alone, it's most people's, is what do I write about? What's, what's my subject? What's my story? What do I have to say to people? And if it's only that I want to be uh, rich and famous and a Hollywood celebrity, well, you know, take any path you want in a way. But if, if you have something more than that going on, uh, then, then that's, a, that's different. Then you, then you have a story you have to begin to imbibe, in a sense. And my story kind of arrived in the 60s. My, uh, and my roommate uh, was a very good friend of Timothy Leary and uh, would go up to Millbrook on a regular basis and do LSD and persuaded me that I should try LSD. This is 1964, five, 1965. And uh, he gave me a very big tablet. And he said, when the right night is, happens, let me know. And I said, you know, Barry, today's the day. I'm going to do it. And interestingly enough, on that very day, the man who brings Timothy Leary, the pure LSD from Sandoz Laboratories in Switzerland, arrived in New York City and came to my apartment. And he asked Barry, could he leave this jar of pure acid LSD, lysergic acid, in my refrigerator overnight before they all went up to Millbrook and Tim Leary? And Barry said, sure. You can kind of tell where the story is going. Oh, but the, the quick and dirty of it is I took the 65 milligrams that Barry gave me for a big hit of a trip and nothing happened. So he said, well, you know, we just happened to have this jar in the refrigerator and he got oh. an eyedropper and he went to give me a drop and he went, oh, and the whole eyedropper, thousands of milligrams of oh my God. went shooting down my, my uh, throat. And I knew 
at that moment that there was nothing I could do about it at all. And so somewhere during the next three to four billion years, I don't know exactly <laughs> the count, uh, I went on a journey that was uh, was remarkable on every level. Uh, and I could spend your whole program talking about that, but I won't. Uh, you, please dive in a little bit, though. Please. I, I want to. Yes. Well, it's just the disintegration of everything you know and believe, including who you are, what you are, that you have a life, that you have a body, that you are existent separate from anything else. You connect to the uh, big boys, to the, to the bigger picture in a really massive way. And uh, and then you, you I thought I was dead. I thought I that there was nothing. There was literally nothing left. And then in the middle of nothing, which is also timeless and spaceless, something happened that I can only describe as a kind of an impregnation. Something dropped into whatever I was. And I divided in half quarters, eight sixteenths, on and on. And the next thing I know, my fingernail and part of the room is coming back and my elbow and then my head and the space I was in. And then I, this whole thing reconfigured itself in a huge way. And it was completely back to where I had been. And I started laughing and roaring with laughter. And I said, why am I back? And this voice, clear as day, and I wouldn't say it was loud, but it was pretty instructive. It said, you're back to tell people what you saw. And then I spent the next however many years trying to figure out what it was I had seen. I was given a copy of the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu Song of God, which is an approach to mystical experience. Then I discovered, of course, the Tibetan version of that, and then the Judeo-Christian versions and the uh, Muslim versions. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And, and there was a worldwide network of people with mystical experience. And I gathered that was my experience in a way that I could begin to grasp with my mind. But what had happened was so beyond mind. And, uh, and, I, and I didn't quite know what to do with it. And I began, I hitchhiked around the world for a year and a half. I had a job as a filmmaker, an editor at NBC News. I gave that up and I decided I had to go to India but with a long stop in Greece before I went, where I was just reading everything and I decided these books aren't doing it. So I continued, you know, um, Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India. I mean, I, I went this, this the, the long route, which was wonderful and informative and essential. And somewhere in the middle of Afghanistan, I had a dream that said, you have to make a masterpiece. I had no idea what that meant or how I would even know if that ever had happened, but it was like a requirement. And then I came back. Uh, well, it's a long, the story goes on and on. I ended up in Japan having not found anything I thought would be a teacher. I had met with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, for uh, a day, trying, thinking I was going to tell him because he was going to talk to the UN what, what the Western co concepts were of Tibet and Tibetan Buddhism and how Shangri-La like it was going to be, but he so far ahead of me. And in the end, uh, we talked and talked and he would, he offered to be my teacher. And I went, ah, I, you know, I just don't think you're my teacher. But if I can't find a teacher, would you be open to my coming back? And he laughed and said, of course, which is the first time that ever happened, because I've met other teachers who, if you don't say now, it's over forever. So that was pretty amazing. And uh, 
And so I continued with my journey. I uh, did not find a teacher at that point. I ended up in uh, Tokyo in a record store. The Beatles had just done a record called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there was another record by a group called Surrealistic Pillow, Jefferson Airplane, called Surrealistic Pillow. And Gracie Slick sang a song called uh, Don't You Need Somebody to Love. And that was like, that was the end of my understanding of what I needed in life. And I came back to America. And uh, my friend said, do you want to meet a girl? I said, yes. Uh, they introduced me to the woman who became my wife. I went home and told her this whole story. I went home to her home. And I said, do you want to be with me for the rest of my life? She said, yes, which is kind of shocking and amazing. And we're in 55 years at this point. There's a lot more to the story than this. Obviously. obviously. I'm giving you little tips of the iceberg. The same day I met her, I met this guy named Rudy. Rudy was a uh, New York City antique dealer with Asian art. I was trying to sell some Tibetan carpets for Tibetan monks I had lived with in Kathmandu. He was not interested. He asked what I was doing in India. I said I was looking for a teacher. He said, did you find one? I said, no. He said, well, I can teach you everything you want to know. Well, I mean, I saw there was enormous hubris in that. I didn't know if I should believe it or not. I went to a class that he uh, conducted, and I sat there, and he looked at me, and I fell flat on the floor, exploded onto the floor. And every time I looked at him, I fell over. Then I started sitting on the floor. And and at that time, I realized uh, I was going to have stories to tell. I didn't know what they were, but I knew where they were coming from. And I also knew that the guys upstairs, whoever, whatever's going on here, whatever name you want to give it, nothingness, everythingness, God, you know, some nirvana. I mean, it goes on and on. But it, it, it wanted to make sure I was committed to this. And I ended up as a film curator at the Whitney Museum. Uh, and my teacher, Rudy, died. And I needed to continue my studies, I thought, with a teacher in Indiana. And I gave up my job as a curator. And during the time in Indiana, I wrote a movie called Brainstorm. And uh, uh, endless stories behind all of this. But the film got made. And while we were in Hollywood at the premiere, we had lunch with Brian De Palma, who said to my wife, uh, if you want a career in Hollywood, Bruce, you got to move here. We were then living in DeKalb, Illinois, where she was a professor of art at Northern Illinois University. Uh, I was teaching public speaking, and we were barely surviving. And she quit her job, and she put our house on the market, said we're moving to Hollywood. I had no career. I had nothing. But I had written a script called Jacob's Ladder, which for some reason actually got the attention of people in Hollywood. And an article came out about... uh, the 10 best unproduced screenplays in Hollywood. And for some reason, I've later learned out why, it was considered one of the 10 best scripts. And in a way, that opened the door for me. And I ended up going to Hollywood. Uh, The first agent I got said, just the week before we moved, I can't represent you. Nobody wants to make movies about ghosts, he said, because I had come up with an idea. (laughs) And I had no agent. But somehow... The universe started to click in in major ways. I got an amazing agent who said I was my scripts were why he got in the business, and his name Jeff Sanford. And uh, I moved out to Hollywood, and he had work for me almost immediately. My wife got a job at the Getty, charge of their uh, evaluating their art program around the country, and our life took off. It just took off, and the films got done. And of course, 
you know, when you do a film like Brainstorm, which had every possible problem that could go wrong in a movie, including Natalie Wood dying before it was finished. And I don't consider that a problem, but a tragedy. But but it but what I realized is having a film made in Hollywood is not a doorway to Hollywood. It's like having a, a child you lost. You don't talk about it. And if you can, if you make films that don't make money, they don't they have no currency in the business. But I did luckily, and still to this day don't know how, write this film Ghost. And for reasons beyond me, it became highly uh, celebrated and, and recognized and financially viable, like the number one film of 1990. How that happened, I don't fully know, but I do know that that uh, opened the doors for a career. And from that time on, I was working. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I just, just want to go. Yeah, no, that was just like a little snippet of your experience. Um, <laughs> so, go ahead. Yeah, there's a, like a, there's a little snippet of your experience. Um, but the LSD alone, just when you, because it's one of my, I've never taken LSD, I've never taken any psychedelics, but I'm fascinated with the spiritual implications of the work that's being done now in at Harvard and many other many other uh, universities around uh, the world are really studying it for PTSD and so many other things. The volume, the, the dosage you took, is 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 insane. Like that's not that even in controlled environments. What do they give you? Well, I don't know, but it, but I would say twentieth hundredth of what I took, something like Jesus. that. You know, I mean. And now there's a lot of microdosing, which may be a smart move. Also, I should, you should know that the LSD I was taking was from Sandoz Laboratories. You know, it was the pure of the, the purest of the pure, mm -hmm. and I, it is no longer like that. So I don't, I'm not a salesperson for LSD at all. Sure, you know, perhaps more psilocybin, but even then, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, all I know is what happened at that moment in time. Everything changed, and my life became a different life. And it somehow impacted me with this need to tell people what I saw, which is in a way why I even said yes to this interview, because I don't turn down the opportunity to share the story. It's, uh, it's meaningful. Again, I don't want to be a promoter of a drug, or even in the end, meditation. You know, I mean, I, I've done meditation for 50, 50 some years. Um, I have to say, uh, I think meditation is wonderful, but most Americans I know are not really geared to <laughs> Tell me quiet about it. meditation or that lifestyle. So I've, I've reduced all of that, and I'll do this quickly because it's a spiel, but basically it, it all comes down to me to be a good person and be kind. And if you can be reactively kind to people when everything in you wants to do the other, that can turn things around inside you that would be similar to what a meditative life would do. In other words, it changes the reaction to the viewer rather than the doer and the reactor. And if you can become that person, which interestingly enough, is the key teaching of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. So I have decided, even though I said no to his teaching all those, all those decades ago, in the end, he truly in a way has been my teacher as he's been a world teacher. But the key teaching is be nice, be kind. So it seems that it just from what you're telling me with with your experience with LSD, it just kind of 
just tore everything away. All the materialistic, all the concepts, all the programming that you have gotten up to that point. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It was all wiped away to show you the truth essence, the truth, the oneness, all of that. Yeah, but, but with no way for the mind to comprehend it. It's a different, you're, you're, you're comprehending it on a different level than the mind. You're, you're just knowing it. Right, exactly. And that's why I've, I've, I've told people differences, like there's belief and then there's a knowing. And there's, there's very different ideas. Yeah. And there's another element of more verb, a verb beyond knowing, which is being. Right. So one learns to go from the knowing into the being. And in a way, there's a very non-dualistic aspect to this. There's not a me and a you, or me and an it, or me trying to do. All that gets, gets wiped out. So there's only the being, which is infinite and eternal and everywhere around us all the time, almost never perceived by uh, the human mind, which is so involved in the me, 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 me sort right. of idea, and which is programmed to be like that. So I'm not saying it's in a way, a bad thing to be a to be a human being and to be a person and all of that is really an unbelievable gift and full of awe and grandeur and beauty and all these things, you know, but we don't see it. So the sadness about being a human being who doesn't recognize any of that, except maybe on the doorway out, I don't really know, uh, is to miss the boat, you know, and to not find it while you're here. And that's, there's sadness in that, because this is an amazing thing we're in. You know, oh, yes, beyond beyond, and 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 it's hard to imagine the world being, in many ways, what it is in so many negative ways, because there's a real yin yang to all of it. There's a good and an evil, and all those things play out. But there's also the witness, and there's also the state in which it occurs. And being the witness to that state, or being one with that state, is remarkable. I mean, just remarkable, and one something we're all capable of. But you know, our culture doesn't talk about it at all. All we talk about is belief and, you know, go to church every every Sunday morning or synagogue on Friday night or Saturday morning or whatever your, your particular teaching is. And, and you know, and I used to do that when I was young and everything was all about who's wearing what. How did, boy, they look beautiful tonight. Sunday best. Sunday best. Sunday best. There was never a sense of um, anything greater going on. It was stand up, sit down, you know, creep, sing and pray. But but there's more to it than that, and I don't want to be a proselytizer, so I can move on to other topics. But this is clearly the doorway to what became a career. And now, I made movies out of because of that. And and now that you've told me about your experience, Jacob's Ladder makes so much more sense. <laughs> I mean, that script. I remember I was working at a video store when that came out. Yeah. Uh, I was working at a video store when I was high school, around eighty-eight to ninety-three. So. I recommended Jacob's Ladder and people were just like, and either you loved it or you were like, what the hell? What kind of trip was I on? Can you imagine a studio trying to make Jacob's Ladder today? Can you imagine? It would not happen. Would not happen. And yet it's an important film in a certain yes. sense in that it creates, it really does depict what the Tibetans would call the bardo state. The state that is either right after you die or right as you are on the edge of dying wow. where you need to fix the mind and the understanding of what you are, who you are, what your life was. It's a, it's full of uh, blame. It's full of darkness. It's full of fantasy. It's full of all of these things, but trying to get to the pure center 
if you can do that in that period of timeless time and get it worked out, which is what Jacob is doing, basically, you become a, uh, I would guess, liberated, free person, or at least able to move on into whatever follows. Did you, were you happy with the way uh, Adrian Lynn directed that film? And like, because it's such a, it's not an easy film to direct. I mean, that's a, it's, that script is not an easy script to, to produce. I think he did a fantastic job. I'm just curious, it's like, did he capture the essence of what you wanted? Again, another long story. Yes. <laughs> On one level, yes. We had an immediate disagreement about it, which in a way resolved itself on his terms, but it probably the right terms. And mine was that I had done a kind of um, biblical version of that journey. There were demons, very classical demons, uh, you know, Blake-like imagery. There was a real Jacob's Ladder, like like this long staircase into heaven and all these, what Adrian would call Spielbergian touches. And he said, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. I won't do that. And he didn't say that right away, but I, but he did say it. And he said, it's just, he said, those are classical images and people will laugh at them. He said, we have to find another version of that. And he showed me this image of a woman with little growths coming out of her head. And they were very disturbing. He said, those are the horns I want. Rather than horns, little, little cancerous-like growths that makes people get really uncomfortable. He said, I want it to look like that that the movie has to be based in physiology of the human being. And it, and it has to have that kind of uh, um, touchstone for people who watch the movie to become deeply uncomfortable as they watch it, rather than free to say, oh, that's just classical biblical imagery. But he was right about that. And, and we dialogued about it a lot. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of... Um, Frustration in some ways on my part as I had to give things up and story upon story in a way. But I think in the end, he made the right movie. Now, we did somewhere for a month before releasing the film, cut out one fifth of the film, the ending. I heard about that. And, and it was because audiences' reactions were no better or worse when the ending was removed. And the ending was very uh, full of uh, kind of turning the wheel again. You know, it didn't really give new information, but it elaborated stuff. And as I watched it, I realized, you know, you can lose it. And I, in the end, voted with the larger team to say, drop it from the film. And then uh, if I watched Jacob's Ladder in those days, I would miss it. But I then watched it 30 years later, not that long ago. And I had forgotten all about that stuff. And I just watched the movie. And I was incredibly moved by it. I did not expect that. I, I found its heart was there. And, and it didn't miss anything. And it also taught me a lot about writing and about explorative writing that sort of recapitulates things that don't need to be recapitulated. You know, the, the core of a story is a very, very simple thing, really. But very many, very many people who write movies in Hollywood uh, don't don't they don't get the simple line of it, and neither, neither do producers or executives. It's kind of shocking, but there are some very simple things you need. And Jacobs Jacobs Ladder found those and got it on film, and it is it's a very trippy experience. And I'm told I don't know firsthand that a lot of kids in college, <laughs> sophomore year, get stoned 
and watch Jacob's Ladder. It's like a rite of passage. I think that's great. <laughs> that's amazing. Now, that other little movie you uh, you wrote in your career, Ghost, uh, you know, I for people listening who are younger, the impact of Ghost when it when it came out was it just was everywhere. It was in the zeitgeist. It was pop culture. I mean, so how many references of the the you know the you know the uh, the pottery scene have we? And you must laugh every time you see them. I mean, the jokes and the the spoofs and I mean that that scene has been done so many times that um, what fascinates me about that movie as well is one of the guys who did Airplane. <laughs> Is the director of Ghost, and I remember in the theater when his name came up. I'm like, "What?" Like even then, I was like, "What is going on?" But my first question about Ghost is, how did that story come to life? Because it's so beautiful and it's so touching, and it's so, you know, it, it just goes along with your filmography so beautifully. But what came? What was the genesis of that idea? Wanting uh, to tell the story of uh, a person on the other side of a ghost who comes back to try to save a woman he loves and to tell her that he loves her. That was the real kind of the genesis, but I didn't have much of a story. And I was trying to figure out how do I get that story to work? And I was watching production of Hamlet and Hamlet has a very big ghost story. And one of the big things is his father as a ghost comes to him, tells him what happened and says, revenge my death. And I thought, ah, there I go. That was my, that was the gift. So I decided my guy, Sam Wheat, had to discover what happened to him, had to know, had to know that he was killed by someone, had to find out who that someone was, had to discover that his wife was in jeopardy. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And that he needed to communicate with her and save her. And he was dead and he was a ghost and couldn't touch anything. He was present in her life. He was there all the time, but he was an invisible presence. And he had to figure out how to become empowered. And so the idea of a psychic came up as someone he could talk to. Yes. And then friends of mine uh, had this idea that it should be, should be a fake psychic, which I said, brilliant, brilliant. That changes everything. And then I just started weaving all of that together into a story. And, uh, and the film started to become what's called a four quadrants film, which means it can talk to audiences at every level, kids and adults and seniors. And, and also that it was sad and dramatic and scary and funny. And it had all those things working in it, but they worked together. Uh, I was, of course, worried when Jerry Zucker was proposed as a director, but I will as tell you, you. As you would. <laughs> Well, before Jerry, Frank Oz was going to do it. And I love the idea of Frank Oz doing it. But he wanted to erase every single shadow in the movie because a ghost couldn't cast a shadow. And I said, Frank, that's not going to matter. Story is going to take over. No one's going to see shadows. I took him to see Blythe Spirit on Broadway. I said, look at all the shadows. The, the, the taking out of the shadows started to be a budget so far beyond the production capacity that, that we decided to step separate. Uh, Milos Forman wanted to direct it. I flew out to Connecticut and had a meeting with him. Very uh, unexpectedly odd kind of experience. <laughs> his, his whole idea was that Molly should die at the end and that she should go off to be with 
uh, Sam in heaven. And I went, oh. And all I could think of was, this is Milos. He's going to call Paramount saying, I want to do this movie. He's going to do it his way. I'm not going to have a word of any of mine in this movie. But I wrote ahead to the executive, Lindsay Duran, who was the, the vice president in charge of this film and central to my life on many levels. And and I told her what everything he said. And so even before he called the studio, they said, no, we're not going that direction. But then she called me and said, are you sitting? And I said, yes. She said, we found a great director for your film. And I'm thinking Scorsese, Spielberg. Spielberg, right, yeah. And she said, Jerry Zucker. And I and I thought, of course, Airplane. I, I mean, I thought all the comedies and I thought, you know, Beetlejuice had just come out. So everybody's, they were going to turn this into an uproaring comedy. But they were they were very serious about Jerry at Paramount. So they wanted us to get together. And I did something which was smart, I think. I, I arranged to have dinner with Jerry, but I said one ground rule. We can talk about anything except ghost. And he agreed to that. And so we just talked and we talked and talked. And to this day, we talk and we talk. This this it formed a friendship that was indelible and remarkable and continues. But when we ended up talking about Ghost, I wrote 19 drafts for him. And after 10, it was such a different movie that I was ready to quit. And I thought, we have ruined everything. And then he started to see it through my eyes. And we started bringing it back. And we got another nine drafts. And by the time they were at the 19th draft, it was the right movie. His ideas, my ideas, they had merged, cross-fertilized. It was really amazing. And we had the movie we wanted, and it was a good script. And uh, I was very excited about it. And then even in the production, where most writers are told, you know, we don't need you or want you around, you're not on the set. Jerry had me on the set every day. And so we were together, and there was a communion between writer and director, which almost never happens in Hollywood. And I think Ghost is a living proof that it can be a good thing if you do it. It worked and, out. And then, you know, hiring Patrick Swayze, Demi Moore, Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, those uh, uh, Tony Goodwin, uh, uh, Goldwin. I mean, just the cast was so perfect. Well, I mean, them, them were shoe ins. <laughs> they were all right. I mean, I mean, Patrick. Patrick essentially was Dirty Dancing at that point, and he was not a. He wasn't a bona fide star. He'd done Roadhouse a year earlier. You know, he's like, eh. And Demi Moore, she's Demi one of the brats. He was pretty much. The, she, the the money first time I met her, she was a yes, but everybody else was over our dead body. <laughs> really? So you had to fight for Patrick? Uh, I had to. Jerry didn't want Patrick at all. Really? And, yeah. And I uh, I talked to his agent, and I said, have he and have him offer to read, have him uh, come to the reading in a suit and tie, and I then she arranged for me to have a phone call with him. I told him wear a suit and a tie and a jacket and all this stuff. Carry a briefcase. And I told him what scene to read, which was the end of the movie. Oh. And he did all of that. And Jerry was sitting there crying, as was the producer, Lisa Weinstein, me. And, and, and Jerry said to me, as soon as he left the room, he said, if I ever say over my dead body, that's who we hire. So that was... And, and it worked out. It worked out okay. <laughs> it worked out great, I think. And, and Whoopi was not my first choice. I was very afraid of an over-the-top kind of performance. And I was very hesitant about it. And, uh, and I was completely wrong. I just completely wrong. She, she won the Oscar. <laughs> won the Oscar, and and she was brilliant. She was totally brilliant. I just loved her in that film, and just loved being around her. So, 
in the end, we were very, very blessed with that movie. Well, the thing with Whoopi and her performance is that she kept, she that counterbalance of the seriousness. I mean, you could that movie was it's it's such an intense movie in many ways, without the the breaks of the comedy that she brought, and it wasn't over the top comedy. It was just just enough right. to break those scenes up. It, it 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 wouldn't have worked without a whoopee. I mean, the whole thing just was a perfect. We tried it. We tried it. We interviewed a lot of major actresses for that part, and I got to tell you, I thought I had written the worst act, worst part ever. It just <laughs> didn't work out. I mean, every every major black actor in Hollywood right out for it, including Tina Turner, who's not an actor, and you know, Elfie Woodard, on and on and on. They all tried out. They were all wonderful, but they were not what we needed. And whoopee was what we needed. That's amazing. And when she came on board, it worked. So the movie comes out. It is a monster hit. I remember at the video store, there was white VHS cases. If you remember correctly, it was, it was unheard of. I'd never seen anything like that because it was such a big movie. It's kind of like a, a marketing promotional thing. It was just a massive, massive hit. Number one movie of the year. I think Home Alone came out that year, if I'm not mistaken. And it, it beat Home Alone. <laughs> it was an insanely big hit. Then you go to the Oscars. And you win. What is it like, first of all, the whirlwind of being in the in the center of that hurricane, the ghost hurricane? Because, I mean, and I love that you prefaced this this conversation of where we're going right now with this, you know, enlightened path that you've walked, you know, and breaking down everything with that trip that you did and everything that you were, I think, ready also at an age too, ready for this kind of success, ready for this kind of attention, because it would crush most souls, most people, correct? <laughs> Telling you um, honestly, the universe was very conscious in withholding any kind of feedback from me. I would never meet people who saw the movie, except for my family. I was in a cab in New York City. The guy said, "What do you do?" I said, "I'm a screenwriter. What have you written?" This movie called Ghost. It was on every billboard. He said, "Oh, I think I heard of that." A, a woman in line behind me at a restaurant um, says uh, to a friend of hers, "You see that horrible movie, Ghost?" And that's what I got. I mean, that's that's really all I got. And uh, the universe, by giving me Hollywood, was basically sending me on a track that is really very common for writers, which is destruction of ego mind. Because so often they take away what you do, give it to other people, other people's voices get in it, other people's hands get dirty with it. And in the end, if the movie looks like what you wrote, you feel lucky. By getting the Oscar, I don't know what it meant. It was an odd moment for me. Uh, I'd always wanted one since I was a kid, but having it felt like done. Something was done. Now, I don't know if that voice that I heard in Afghanistan said, do a masterpiece. I don't know if Ghost is a masterpiece. I, I, I don't claim I'd it. I'd argue. Me. I'd argue it's a beautiful film. You, know, you know, to me, I got this award that said recognition on some level. It went on my bed stand when I got home and never moved. It's not highly displayed. You know, you walk into certain offices in Hollywood and all you see are the, the awards first. I, to me, it was, the, it was getting something done on my journey that needed to be finished that was really important. I happened when I was, I was in Hong Kong at, on Victoria's Peak at the end of my round-the-world journey. And I was sitting up there and something in me again said, done, that I had gone around the world. And somehow I had completed something, maybe from another life. I don't know how that works, but whatever it was, it was done. 
That was a great thing. Oscar, done. Put stuff aside, move on. Move on to whatever follows. But it's not to sit around and go, hey, hey, look, look what I am. Because one of the things you realize on the LSD trip and the Bardo state of, of Jacob's Ladder is they tear all that away. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You know, they just take your whole life away. And there's actually a teaching in Jacob's Ladder, which is really crucial from a 16th century, century theologian. And, uh, and, and he said, if you're afraid of dying, holding on, you'll see demons tearing you from your flesh. If you're open to dying, the same demons are angels freeing you from the earth. It's a matter of where you have arrived in your life. And that really is kind of uh, wow. essential. And the, and the theologian is named Meister Eckhart. He's a great theologian. But that's really what the human journey is. Are you attached to you? Because you don't leave this world with you. They take it, they take everything away. Are you able to go like this? Or are you going like that? And that's kind of the human journey. And very few people I know have gotten to this. But you can. My mother-in-law, without any spiritual life of any kind at all, and kind of angry at lots of people and a lot of stuff, slowly as she lost her mind in dementia, she arrived at her last words to me, which were silent, were... And it said everything. So you don't have to sit and meditate your whole life away. You just have to, whatever it takes, because she was a good person, you just have to get to this, you know, and that's really meaningful and valuable. That's such a powerful, powerful idea of the demons and the angels. It is such a powerful idea um, because it's the same action. It's just about perspective. Remarkable. Um, so you, so as far as once you got the Oscar and you were in town and everybody's like, you're the best, you're the best, you're the greatest. The ego didn't get out of control. You, it was completely you had it on a lock. Hey, a quick story. Um, yeah. I'm walking out of the Paramount Commissary with a, an executive, and he's telling me, and this is before the script was starting to happen, really. It was just beginning. He said, you wrote the best script I've ever read in my life. And I went, blah, blah, blah. wow. A week later, I'm walking out of the commissary. He's in front of me with another guy, and he's telling the other guy, I want you to know you wrote the best script I've ever read in my entire life. And I went, oh. That's how it works. <laughs> and there, my friend, is Hollywood. <laughs> that is Hollywood. That is Hollywood. Without... I'm telling you, there, there is a lot, a lot to be learned from all of that. And if you want, you know, some people get crushed by it and just oh, yeah. sadness and misery. And some people, and I've been one of the lucky ones who get kind of like freed from it. I don't walk around with a Hollywood identity at all. It's It's so past tense. I'm glad I had it. It was really, it was a great ride, but mostly it's crushing, you know, the things, the stuff that's taken away and changed and altered. And, you know, you, you wouldn't believe the ride of a writer in Hollywood. Most people don't. You know? It is brutal. I'm writing a, a, an autobiography, whether it will ever put it out or not, I don't know, but it really does capture what it means to be that person, to be a writer in this business because I haven't seen any books about it that really it's nothing that talks about the the real heart of what you go through. On the other hand, what an honor to be able to write movies that speaks speak to hundreds of millions of people. 
mm-hmm. without without question. And one of my other one of the other films in your filmography that really touched me and is the one that you directed, My Life, with Michael Keaton and, and Nicole Kidman. And it, it is it, these are these are movies that would never get made today. None of them. Most most of your filmography would never get made today by the studio system. But that's to be said by many people of, of the '90s and '80s and '90s. But that film is so touching. Even when I was saw it when it came out, I was still a young man. It moved me. Now looking back, I have children now. I just like it's a completely different experience watching a film like that. Where did that idea come from? And for the people who have not heard about what that movie's about, can you give it like a you know quick little logline about it? Yeah, it's a simple logline, which if I were a studio head would say, nope. <laughs> but it's basically <laughs> a guy who's dying of cancer who discovers that he's going to have his first child and he will not live long enough to meet that child. And he wants to leave something that will represent who he is to his family, but he has no idea really who he is. So it's a movie of discovery, finding out who he is and what he can leave for this child. 300 and, million, 300 million budget, easy. <laughs> uh, I mean, again, thousands of stories, and it was the most poorly reviewed movie I ever did, ever worked on. It was so bad that I went into like a spiraling depression for about nine months. I think it was. I mean, it was really a killer. Why? Nobody, I mean, I, I, I loved people it. Hated it. People hate. Well, it found now, its. It found its audience. It found its it, audience. It, later. it has since found its audience, and it's been incredibly sort of meaningful to me but the what what finally gave it a voice and it's a story kind of worth telling to other writers in uh that i went to a party some months after it came out and a woman came up to me and she said i understand you wrote the movie my life and i said yes and she said i have to tell you something my husband died three years ago and i had a 10 year old son and he and i were never able to talk about his father's passing she said, I found out just uh, recently that I have terminal cancer. Oh. And the idea of leaving this world without a dialogue with my son was so painful. But we went to this movie theater and saw this film, My Life. And my son was sobbing. And we came home and he sat down on my lap and we had the conversation that I needed to have in order to leave this planet. So I want to say thank you. And I went. And now I knew why I made the movie. One, two people. It was, and, and it was perfect. I didn't need anybody else. But if it happened for those two, I'm sure it happened for many others around the world. And that's why it's found its voice around, because it's not an easy conversation to have nope. at all. And you made it palatable with that story and Michael Keaton's performance. Oh. 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 Even Michael now talks about it positively. He says, he says people ask him about that movie more than anything else. Really? Batman, you know, they want to know about Beetlejuice, Batman, all the major things he's done in his career. And he's like, that little movie I did called My Life. But he was so brilliant in it. And he was was great. He he was was amazing. Nicole was perfect. Nicole Kidman was brilliant. And and Queen Latifah got her first big acting job in that movie. That's right. That's right. it It had a place in the history of Hollywood. But not for me. It was like it was. It just tore me apart. So how did you? How did you come out of that? That because look, we all go through that. We all have something happens to us that we will go down that dark road. How did you come out of that dark road? Even with all the experience and, and knowledge that you have about 
consciousness and oneness I, and everything. My, my, teacher, my teacher, Rudy, was just brilliant, brilliant. He said, a pattern that takes you nine years to work through at one point will occur again and take nine months, and then it will occur and take nine weeks, and then it will be nine days, and then it will be nine hours, then it'll be nine minutes, and then it'll be nine seconds. So be prepared. Things that can take huge tolls on you when you're older wow. be like this, you know, and I have learned that. You know, he's Rudy is so right. Oh, he was brilliant. He was totally brilliant. I Great. mean, because things that used to like would tear me up when I was a young man would take me months, then would take me weeks, then take so now it got to a point where it takes me seconds for something that would have derailed me for weeks, even holding on to grudges and all this kind of stuff. You just let go of it much quicker as you get. Oh, you can. I mean, not everybody does that. Of course, of course. But if you can and do it, it's a great thing. And I learned a great deal from uh, from that. And you know, every other movie I did, I mean, I'd say a third of the movies that I wrote got made. Two thirds did not. So I wrote a lot of other movies. But actually, one third is a fairly good ratio. Very good ratio. And uh, and I and I learned from every single movie that I did. And every one of them taught me a different lesson. I worked with amazing personalities that all have stories behind them. But I really, uh, I came away with a big worldview, you know, that that the Hollywood, a worldview of Hollywood and, and people who were highly successful and people who were on the way out the door and, you know, in between. But it's, it's like, if you're going to study human experience, it's a great place because it's so blasted at you in a big way. So I, I'm grateful for that. What is the biggest lesson you think you took away from your time working in Hollywood? Um, well, the, the lesson for me is, is it's not an owned thing so much as, you know, you know, stay humble and don't think you are the identity that other people might thrust at you. You know, for me, it was because they're still they're still doing it. I, Rudy called it the guys upstairs and I call him, but you, I, I, God is just as good a word for me or whatever you want to call it. It still directs me and it's still very much, uh, it humbles me on every opportunity it can because uh, I see myself as nothing more than a conduit in a voice in a way. And I try to do the best version of that I can do. My best scripts were, were taking dictation. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Now back to the show. You know, and I just follow. I follow what's what kind of I'm being given. I mean, it feels like you're writing, and I can see why people think they they did it. You know, until they can't, and they drink, and they do all these things to try to find a way back to it. But you know, it's really it's really a transmission in a sense, and it's working for the human race and for people and for the betterment of being in the world. You know, I mean, I think I personally believe, I don't know this as a fact, that at the core of this whole emptiness and nothingness that this comes out of, the first thing that rises is love. And don't ask me how or why, but I've had that experience now so many times when they drop the bottom out underneath me, even to this day, and there's nothing there, nothing at all. And if there's a part of you that reacts to it, that's the, that's got to go. You know. So if there's a part of you that goes, oh, yeah, erase it. And then when there's absolutely nothing and you just go, okay, this thing starts to rise up and it is a rising, ascending, lift up energy and it starts with love. And then it goes into, I mean, I'll quote, beauty and truth start to flow into manifested form. And here we are, 
you know, and I see where it comes from. And I know it goes back to nothing, but I, I you know, I don't, I don't care because that nothing is unbelievable. And when it starts to manifest, it, its beauty is beyond belief. And we are, it's one of its expressions. You know, there are probably others way bigger than us and better than us, but we're, we're its expression. And now AI is its expression. So it doesn't even need a body or a person. It can just happen. In, we did, we were maybe not, maybe here just to create AI, you know, it doesn't need food. It all needs is electricity, you know, and it may, maybe a programmer at first, but then it's all, you know, you it just goes it. off and runs. It goes off and runs. Um, it, it, I find it interesting because I've spoken to a lot of, you know, successful writers over the years and when you're writing i think and even as as, I, as me as i'm when i write the best writing i've ever done is when i feel like i'm not writing it feels like it's coming through is there something that you do in your process as a writer to kind of tap into that i get out of the way <laughs> I just but do you just do you show up at a certain time do you like is it a, a routine or do you just a second you sit down you just go i'm well, open been writing, but but it used to be uh, um, morning was rewrites, which made it easy. So I would sit down and fix what I did the day before and polish it and get in the gear in a way. Somewhere I put lunch in there, and then the the with the movement and the activity was already in place, and I would create the new stuff in the afternoon. And I would try to write three to four pages a day. And if I did that over the course of 10 weeks, which is usually what you're contracted for in Hollywood, I would have a finished script. It would be a first draft. It would need work and all that other stuff. But, you know, I wasn't sitting looking over my shoulder being critical as I wrote because that, then you don't write. Then you're just sit, sitting there rewriting the same scene 400 times and you don't even really know where it's going. You don't know how it's going to end up. So I think just write, just let it out, see where it goes, be surprised. I love to be surprised in a movie. You know, when it when it happens, I remember when I was writing Ghost and a lot of the movies about how Sam never says, I love you, he says, ditto. Right. And finally he comes back after all of this drama and is able to say to his lover, his woman he loves, I love you for the first time. And she goes, ditto. I didn't expect her to say ditto. And the minute I was typing ditto, I just burst into tears. I mean, it was like, poof. I was just completely taken over by by Molly being Molly, not me being Bruce, just it was Molly. And she was writing what she needed to say. And that was incredible. And I get to be the witness of that. You know, I just did it. And, she, I, you know, you be, the characters live in you and they become alive. And then you have this moment that's really so personal and simple. And I think a lot of people cried at that moment. And, uh, oh. you know, and so, you know, you, you're just the first person who gets to see it. That's that's remarkable. Um, when you when you, the stories that you've talked about and the, the stories that you've written over the years have been about the unseen world, as as this as states on your um on your biography. W what drew you to that? Was it be, again back to that that LSD trip that kind of just set you on the path that you're like I I need to explore what we aren't seeing and and putting this out into the mainstream. Yeah, and being told to do it. You know, this is saying, you you know, you 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 went around the world. You've read, you've looked, you've talked, you've experienced. You've had teachers get it on screen, but get it on screen for the masses, not for the few. Talk to the world. Talk to the world. Give them some insight. And so, my experience is every movie that I have done is a sentence. 
And in the 12 or whatever movies I've made that got produced, it's a paragraph. And it's all a paragraph about the same thing, about the sense of time, space, continuum, the idea of there being something beyond that we don't understand, and, and that we're all on a journey to find it. Even funny little movies like The Last Mimsy, which, you know. Oh, I love The Last Mimsy. It's so, such a fun movie. But I wanted to write for children, but, but adults came to me telling me how moved they were about that film. And, and, you know, and part of me wanted just to go to children, including like Stuart Little 2, which I had a, a very real conception of that would impact little kids. But, you know, I was overruled in many ways on, on that. And so some of the things I wanted to, to sort of plant as seeds may not have gotten planted. But uh, I, you know, I've learned, I've just learned a lot. And Last Mimsy was an interesting one because it had a very strong Buddhist aspect. It's about these kids who find toys from the future and who are, who need to be, have their, we don't know this till the end. I don't know, should I give away the ending? It's fine. Know. It's fine. Yeah. But the ending of the movie is the impregnation of this little creature that they find that will carry the DNA of a pure soul from the past into the future and save humanity, really. But I, that's not in the in the original. There's a short story called Mimsy Where the Boar Grows that uh, I, where it was a TV pilot once for something, and I saw it and it didn't have an ending, and I just didn't didn't know what it was, and nobody ever went with it. But I remember being like, "What was the ending? What was the ending?" And it turned out I had to be the one who did the ending. And the way the ending came to me was walking into the meeting at New Line with no idea, but all I could think of was Tibetans. And the Tibetans have this thing, when the Dalai Lama dies, they have to find a new Dalai Lama. And the way they determine that is they take all the toys that were part of the Dalai Lama's childhood, and they mix them up with all these other toys from other kids, and they go on a search that's led by psychics and people who have some insight, and they go to these new children, and the one who picks all of his old toys, that's when they know who it is. And that that lesson through the Dalai Lama uh, was the one I walked into the meeting at New Line with, and I sold it. Michael Phillips was there. He's you know, done Close Encounters, The Third Kinds, and all these other wonderful films, and Michael got it. He just got it and said, yes, yes. And, and somehow I, I then got the job of writing the movie. It was an eight-year process, which I... Yeah, no, Bob Shea, Bob Shea was, if I'm not mistaken, he was like, wanted it so bad. He, like, he really wanted to make it. Yeah, he did. He, he, he directed it. He and I went to the same high school, which is kind of strange and interesting. But in the month before we were supposed to have this movie shot, he talked to Steve Jobs and he said, uh, why is Pixar so successful? What is it about these movies that are so successful? And uh, and he said, he cut out everything that's not necessary. And Bob came to me and he said, Bruce, cut 30 pages. And I said, we're about to shoot. This movie is is locked in. We're, we're, we're going forward. Cut it out. Cut everything that's not necessary. And he said, you know, he didn't say this, but it, clearly I had a lot of Buddhist monks inter interfering, if you will, infiltrating the film. And I realized they're not going to survive. And I had to pull all of them out of the movie, all the scenes with them and 30 pages of stuff. And the movie came out and I thought it was going to be so absent of what I had wanted it to be. And what I discovered is if it's embedded in its core DNA, right. it doesn't matter what you pull out, it's still there. And I was so surprised by that and so shocked 
that I, and I learned all these lessons. And so, you know, I'm not saying that it was right to cut all those pages, but the movie survived. It worked. It was a whole piece of cloth. And I was totally grateful for that. And I, ha I have to ask you, because you've had this, ex this uh, effect on humanity with the work that you've done, because like you said earlier, your stories got out to millions, hundreds of millions of people around the world. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. What does it feel like for you as, as a conduit for this information? Uh, how do you, as your life's work, as your life's work, how does that feel? Because you, you've impacted so many people with your work. And the one thing, before you answer, the one thing that I love about your stories, I've spoken to hundreds of screenwriters. Oscar winners and starters, everybody. What I find really interesting about your journey as a writer and as a human being, as a soul, is that your work has a, 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 a thread that connects all of them. And how you can connect the last Mimsy to Jacob's ladder is a talent to say the least. Of course, actually. But, but the thing is that you, you, you had a very clear mission on what you were trying to do with your life, with your career as a writer, to help the world awaken a bit more. How does that feel? Or was, was it a conscious effort, or did you kind of just stumble upon it? No, but the reward, the, the funny little rewards, one was deep impact and trying to go off and, and, and hit a, a meteorite that's coming, or an asteroid to destroy the Earth. Mm -hmm. and. There were not a lot of people in this country who were thinking that was a real issue or a big problem, but it is a potential problem. <laughs> and about two months ago, they actually sent a rocket yeah. off and found that they could deflect a comet on its path to the Earth. And I met with a lot of scientists, and then I met with a lot of congressmen after the film came out, trying to talk about this issue because I said, and the movie said, this is a real issue. And so when I saw that comet deflected, I thought one tiny part of me has helped save possibly the human race. I don't know, but that's a really tiny little sweet thing. And then I friend sent me an article just the other day, out of nowhere, about this guy who's trying to use artificial intelligence to help people who have um, uh, paralysis, total paralysis, to be able to move things with their mind. And he said the inspiration for him was when Sam Wheat in Ghost right. was moving the penny up the door and caused it to float. He said he saw that and that connected in his mind. And he has now created an AI program that is going to be able to, is already helping people move things with their mind. And I went, wow. So little things like that, they don't, I'm not walking around carrying a uh, you know a big placard saying, "Look what I did! Look what I did!" I have no none of that at all. It's almost like a joke. I mean, I don't know if you. This is about in July. Uh, the the History Channel <laughs> came out with something that someone sent me, which said, you know, the famous, the most important thing that happened on this date in history, and the most important thing that happened on that date in history, which was the 13th of July, 1990, was Ghost opened. And I went, what? <laughs> what? Ghost? <laughs> That's the most important thing that happened. And I sent that to Lindsay Duran, who used to be the, you know, the 
the executive at Paramount. And she said, Marat Saab died on that day. What do you mean the ghost was the most important thing that happened <laughs> on that day? And I look at it and in a way it's like, it is like a laughable thing. I have no idea. I don't own it. I don't care. It's, it was an interesting kind of wonderful ride. And I'm grateful for the ride. I would, I would tell anyone in the world who's open to losing their mind and their ego and everything else. If you want a journey into speaking to multiples of people and telling them something that might be worth saying one mm -hmm. sentence, then that's, that's, uh, it's a worthwhile life. And where can people find out more about the work you're doing with your meditations? We didn't even touch on your photography and your meditation and what you teach. Uh, and also just to get access to your old scripts and things like that. I think the scripts are online. I don't, I have no idea. I see them every so often they come up there for sale. I don't know who's selling them. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I've been teaching this meditation class and I give talks that are on YouTube under my name, Bruce Joel Rubin. And there are 500 plus now talks. So if anybody isn't totally bored already with just what I've had to say here, you can check, you can check them out. The class I give is you have to be uh, initiated into the actual pr practice. You can't just share it in general. So I don't, and you know, Rudy had it be one-on-one -on -one and I try, and that's what I do. I try to share the practice one-on-one, -on -one. but the lessons of that are all on talks that I give after the classes and, uh, and I still teach them. I've been teaching, you know, every Sunday for 50, 50 years or more. And, uh, and they're just kind of what I'm learning week by week, you know, and, and I'm not trying to teach them as any ultimate anything, but they do, I think, hope open minds and eyes a little bit to a way of looking that might be helpful. My friend, thank you so much for being on the show. It has been a pleasure and an honor talking to you. And you're such an inspiration on multiple levels, not only in the filmmaking side, but on the spiritual side as well. I appreciate all the work you've done for humanity and for and for good storytelling. So I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you. It's, it's equal. Thank you so much. I want to thank Bruce so much for coming on the show and sharing his journey with all of us. Thank you so much, Bruce. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 268. And again, guys, I really hope you come and check out Next Level Soul because it is really close to my heart and I really want to help as many people as possible answer the big questions about life. So again, it's nextlevelsoul.com or if you want to watch it, you can head over to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. And of course, it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. There are some major guests coming up in the next weeks and months that I've got cooking for the tribe. So keep an eye out for all of those. Thank you again. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at BulletproofScreenwriting.tv. 